Here it comes. All right, there we go. You can hear me now, right? I'd be remiss without obeying my wife and saying happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. That God is blessed with uh, bringing offspring into the world. What a blessing it is. We're going to continue in our message through the book of Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, but we're actually going to read verses 28 through verse 5, uh, since it's been about a month since we've covered this, to kind of bring us all back up to speed. Just a couple other reminders. Uh, Wednesday night is the New Believers Bible Study class, so if you really want to get more grounded into the fundamentals of the Christian faith and scriptures, I want to deeply encourage you to come out. Thursday nights we're doing a really awesome inductive Bible study. Um, I want you to come out, ask questions, learn, uh, to develop the habit of feeding on the Word of God. Without that, we just don't have any chance. Um, good question. Yeah, thank you, Sheila. Um, um, on Wednesday nights, it's from 6 to 7. On Thursdays, it's 5.30 to 6.30. Welcome to come out and just partake and dig in and ask questions and uh, and grow in your understanding of scriptures. Amen? Okay, so follow along with me as I read in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 5. You can follow on the overhead. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And then chapter 3, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul says, Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. <clears throat> Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and thou must, mightest prevail when thou art judged. But... If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. So let's go to slide four. Let's kind of like pick this apart. Back in verse 28 and 29 of Romans chapter 2. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from God but from men. Put it up in slide five. Here's how the New Living puts it in a more of our modern vernacular. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born to Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No. Now look at verse 29, church. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, look at this church. 
It is a change of heart that is produced by the Holy Spirit. And a person with a changed heart is a person who seeks praise from God, not from people. Spells it out for us, doesn't it? <clears throat> so what are we learning from Paul's teaching? Paul wanted them to understand that what makes a man a Jew is not so much that he belongs to a nation, <clears throat> but rather, church, it's an inward state. And we learned that Paul was driving home this very point that circumcision is not a matter of something that is external, as in the flesh, as the Jews were thinking. It's something that is in the heart and spirit of the inner man. It is an inner grace that is revealing itself on the outside by how you and I live. See, God initially, as we learned back when I started this, He gave circumcision as an external sign to the Jewish nation. But the real evidence is in the heart of each person, whether they are Jew or a non-Jew. It is clear, and Paul is driving home this point as we're going to see, that no ritual will ever save a person. Never forget that God sees inside of us in our inner heart. So then, what makes a man a Jew is not that he is born of Israel. It is his relationship to the Lord. And we looked at what Paul taught back in, um, or in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It wasn't Paul's was Matthew. But what does the scripture say? This is Jesus talking actually here. Slide 6. Blessed. Makaroi. Blessed is the pure of heart. See that? For they shall see God. There's the word cardia, where we get the word cardiac from. Blessed is the pure in heart. Now he's talking about the inner heart there. For they shall see God. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, what did Matthew mean when he used the word blessed? What did that word mean 2,000 years ago back to them? Because we can add all kinds of meanings of it today. Well, blessed back then meant a joy and satisfaction that lasts regardless of what circumstance you're going through. That kind of blessed joy is what carries you through, regardless of your circumstance. Church, do you have that joy? That's the question. See, obviously all people want to be blessed. But sadly, most people seek it in the things of this world, whether it's money, power, or sensual pleasures. So he says, blessed are the pure in heart. So we had to ask ourselves, okay, Matthew, what did you mean when you used the word pure? Well, the word pure to them meant something that's unsoiled, something that is not polluted, something that is holy, somebody whose conscience is cleansed by our Lord and Savior. You see, the person who is pure in heart is someone who will strive daily to live a life that glorifies God, a clean life. And that's where we have to do Psalm 139. Search me, Lord. Is there any evil way in me? Is there something in me that's hijacking my heart to serve you? You see, a person who is pure in heart is, now listen, is somebody that will separate him or herself from anything that would separate them from the Lord. So are there any things in our life, church, that are causing us to separate from the Lord? Any things that our eyes are gazing upon that's moving us away from the Lord, we have to be careful of that. Hear me this morning. What Matthew's talking about here and what Paul's driving home is this. 
It's what on the inside that counts. It's holiness and truth and your relationship with the Lord. Let's all keep in mind that we are all guilty before God, whether it's a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. Your ethnic background has absolutely nothing to do with it at all. Nothing. All are equally lost and in desperate need of Christ. So, if we are relying on anything else other than Christ, let's face it, we're in trouble. There's no law, there's no ritual, whether it's circumcision or being baptized or even taking communion, that makes a person acceptable to God. Those outward things aren't what make you acceptable to God. And we have learned that being acceptable to God is never an outward thing or behavior. Being acceptable to God is something that takes place on the inside. It's being born again by God the Holy Spirit. So those who belong to Christ have been circumcised spiritually in their hearts. Slide 7. Look at Colossians 2, what Paul wrote. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Slide 8. Here's how the New Living puts it. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision in the cutting away of your sinful nature. And this isn't just some New Testament thing. How about Deuteronomy 6, slide 9 and 10. Moreover, Yahweh your God, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And again, I like how the New Living puts it. Yahweh your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and your soul, that you may live. I want you to notice something here. Who's doing the changing of your heart? Amen. See, when you and if you have come to a saving faith in Christ, the scriptures are teaching us that the Lord begins the surgical cutting away of your sin nature. The Holy Spirit begins to do His work on the inside of you, molding and transforming your heart. You don't enter into this journey by trying to be some good person or doing rituals or even going to church. Listen, going to church ain't going to save you. You see, you enter into the relationship, you enter in the journey by faith alone in Christ alone because you are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and no other way. Listen, prior to being saved, All of us followed after the course of this world. All of us indulged in the flesh of this world. All of us did what we wanted to do. We pursued our own dreams, our own agendas. It was all about what we wanted for our pleasure. I got goals. When you come to a true saving faith in Christ, something happens on the inside. Listen, those dreams and agendas begin to change. All of it begins to change on the inside. We no longer go our own way. We no longer follow along with the crowd. We no longer want to participate in the things that unsaved people do as a way of life. 
Has that happened to you yet? And when you come to a saving faith in Christ, when your mouth is stopped and you realize you have no act on your own to make yourself right with God on your own, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Let me say it again. When you come to faith in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. I hope you understand that. All charges against you in the spiritual courts are canceled out. You're set free from the bondage of sin, church. See, Jesus wants you to exchange. Now listen. He wants you to exchange your heavy load of sin that's been weighing you down and crushing you for his light load of amazing grace. And as we start into chapter 3, I want us to keep in mind the bigger picture of what Paul's been saying. Giving you a little recap going back real quick. Put up slide 11. All the way back in chapter 1, what does Paul say? He says, and I wonder if we could say this too. I'm not ashamed of the eugalion, the gospel. Why? Paul, why aren't you ashamed? It is the power of God. The dunamis, it's where we get our English word dynamite from. It's that explosive power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, a righteousness of God in, and in the Greek, it is being continually revealed from faith to faith. That is written, the righteous man is a man who's going to live by faith. Paul has been going on about his reasons for not being ashamed of this gospel. From chapter 1 through chapter 2, he's making it clear there is this righteousness from God that is being revealed from faith to faith. The just will live by faith. Do you have faith? See, unlike many today, Paul is excited about the gospel. In fact, he's boasting about it. He's not ashamed of it. Do we remember why? Put up slide 12. Well, Paul also says something else is being revealed from heaven. Look at slide 12. There's your word apocalyptite or apocalypto, an uncovering or revealed. The orge, the wrath of God, is being continually revealed from Aranos, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, there's the word kateko, who continually are suppressing or forcing back the truth in unrighteous behavior. They don't want to hear from God. They don't want to hear anything from God or what God wants. They're pushing back. And again, we have this universal statement about mankind. Notice, it doesn't matter whether I'm a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter about any of that. God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's a universal statement, church. Paul proves his case against the Gentiles because of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And as we learn from chapter 2, he moves on to reveal that this is just as true for the Jewish nation as well. Now, we've already learned that the Jews thought that they were exempt from God's wrath. We have the law. We have the prophets. We have circumcision. And Paul proves his case that they were not exempt. Now, here in chapter 3, you'll notice three main themes throughout chapter 3. In verses 1 through 8, Paul is dealing with the Jews in regard to what he's said to them or what he's been telling them. 
we'll law, later on we'll see in verses 9 to 20, he's going to pull together all these verses from the Old and New Testament to further prove his case he's making. And this is important because the Jews regarded the Old Testament as authoritative. And we need to understand, your Old Testament in your Bible is every bit as important as your New Testament. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I don't need to read that anymore. Because about 60% of your New Testament is direct quotes or verses from the Old Testament. So Paul clearly wants to show them that what he's been speaking to them about, it's not opinion. It's right there in God's Word. They need to read it. And in verses 19 to 20, he spells out for them that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be held accountable to God. Put up slide 13. So in chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Or as the new NLT says, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value at all in the ceremony of circumcision? What do we see Paul doing here? Paul is raising questions about what he's been teaching them to further help them understand and further his case. Now, the Jews were probably thinking things like what I just shared with you. Paul, Paul, you're saying to us then, just because we're Jews, we are just as much under God's wrath as those, those dogs, those Gentiles over there? Paul, listen up. If our heritage of being a Jew and knowing and having the law and following all of our rituals, being circumcised, doesn't make us righteous before God, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? That's probably what's going through their mind. <clears throat> There's no benefit to having circumcision. There's no benefit of having the Old Testament. Paul is in essence saying to them, yo, you guys are completely missing the point. You have completely have been misunderstanding what I've been saying to you. Paul says, now you listen up. I'm not saying that a Jew has no advantage over a Gentile. What I am saying is that when it comes to being saved and you're being a Jew and being circumcised, that in itself will not save you from God's wrath. That's the point he's trying to drive home. As for all of us, we should all know in the New Testament church that baptism, church attendance, taking the Lord's Supper... Showing up at church, that does not save you either. We also need to point out that Paul is not saying that there's no difference between a Jew or Gentile, but only from the standpoint of a person being saved. In fact, look at verse 2, slide 14. There were some great advantages to being a Jew. Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And look at the uh, NLT. Yes, there are great benefits to being a Jew. First of all, you Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. It was entrusted to you guys. And if you read through your Old Testament, look at the mockery they made of that. Look at the mockery that we also make as a New Testament church. So Paul says, first of all, you've been entrusted with these oracles of God. God gave you his oracles to look after and obey. And church, that word oracles used here, the, word is, the Greek word is logion, has the idea of divine revelation. That's what the Greek means. So Paul was in essence saying that you Jews, you guys were the ones that were entrusted with the very words 
of the only true and living God. Those oracles, those divine utterances, those revelations are the truths that God has revealed in His Word, the Scriptures. We're not talking about thoughts or dreams. Why? Because an oracle is an actual statement in and of itself. This is important, church. When Paul uses the word oracle here as he's speaking to the Jews, we need to understand he's talking about God's very word itself. It is God's word that was first entrusted to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people. And the Jews had the Old Testament. And they were proud of this. Hear me this morning, church. We must, in this day and age, as this world is falling apart, coming unglued, and crumbling around us, you and I must seriously understand that the Old Testament does not just contain the Word of God. We need to understand that the Old Testament is the very Word of God. Case closed. We can all ask this question. Why is this the greatest privilege of all, as Paul clearly singles this out in verse 2? Well, church, there can be no higher privilege than for a person hearing from God through his word. Consider what Moses said back, slide 15 and 16. Look what Moses said back to the Jews. This is going back to Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now here, Moses is spelling it out for him. Let's not misunderstand it. <clears throat> All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be what? Careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the ways which Yahweh your God has led you into the wilderness these 40 years. <clears throat> Why did he do that? He tells us here that he may humble you. When you're going through trials and you're going through temptations and everything and God's allowing you to go through all that stuff, it's to humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or just bail on God. Verse 3, he humbled you. He let you be hungry. Yet he fed you with manna, which you did not know. You never saw before. You didn't know where it came from. Nor did your fathers know that he, Yahweh, might make you understand <clears throat> that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. What gives life to every human being? Church. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that comes right out of the mouth of the Lord, of Yahweh. Sadly, isn't it interesting that we should confess that we don't usually give that much thought to it? Let's be honest with him. If it can be said that there is no greater privilege that a person can be directly spoken to by God, it should also be said that there's no greater tragedy than for a person to come to a place that God ceases to speak to him or her. Nothing can be more tragic than for God to be silent and a person is then left 
to their own imaginations or thoughts. And you read Revelation or Romans 1, 18 through 30, you'll see that. <clears throat> For the Jew, then receiving the oracles of God, Paul's saying, look, that was the supreme privilege that came to you guys first and no other race at that time. That's what he's trying to get across to them. God spoke to the nation of Israel. God spoke to man. There is no higher privilege in this world. This is why there was back then such an advantage to being a Jew. All of the other nations of that day, they were still living in darkness. They were worshiping their false god, their idols, building temples to their false gods. They lived in darkness. But for the Jew back then, God spoke to them. And he made it clear to them that there's only one true and living God. God revealed his character to them. And he gave them knowledge about who he is. And he made a covenant with them. That's what circumcision really was all about. It was really about a covenant. He entered into the covenant with Abraham. Slide 17. And I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in, all, and in you, all the families of the what? Earth will be blessed. <clears throat> and one final point we should address here is that unlike the pagan nations, the Jews were given something very important. They were given hope. They had the hope of the coming Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. What did God say to Moses? Slide 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Church, it was these oracles, these revelations that God back then entrusted to the Jewish people of that day. That was their privilege. Hear me this morning. This is remarkable. Hear this. We have the same privileges today. We have the same scriptures today. People will ask me, Pastor Jack, why doesn't God talk to me? I say, well, yes, he does. How does he speak to me? Open your Bible and read it. Open your Bible and read it. God speaks to us today through his word. It's not up there. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you've got a Bible, I've got to cover this. Where does it say that, Pastor Jack? I don't believe you. Okay, then don't. What's he saying? Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And then we'll keep, keep going on. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers... In the prophets, he spoke in many portions, in many ways. Verse 2, verse 2 of the word. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. <clears throat> he is the radiance, the apagasma, the bright shining of his glory. He is the character, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all, three, all things by the word of his power. 
When he, Jesus, had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is how Jesus speaks to us right here. The Jews, they were guardians of this, the Old Testament that was entrusted them. They were given the knowledge. They were supposed to make the knowledge their own, just like we are today. What a privilege it is to be God's spokesman, his representative. And church, hear me this morning. This is just as true for you and I who are born again followers of Christ today. You and I have been given the awesome privilege to do the very same thing that the Jews did. This knowledge is what leads a person to know if he or she is a sinner and under God's wrath. And as a result of that knowledge, <clears throat> it is a, to lead a person to seek God's mercy and deliverance and salvation. Pagans didn't know this. Today, many unbelievers do not know God. Many unbelievers don't want to know God. They don't want to know his character. And so they remain under God's wrath. Put up slide 19. This is why we, it's important that we share the good news that is found in the scriptures. Here's some questions for you to think about. Do we yet understand how privileged we are to even have a Bible? You know, it, it's one of the most neglected books in most homes. There's more dust on it than in Texas on a farm that hasn't seen rain in 100 years. Yet the very word of God sits in most homes, and people would rather watch Seinfeld, Law and Order, and all of those shows, but they can't give God 30 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day. But they can watch their TV, or they can be on their phone for a 1,000 hours. <laughs> Who's texting me now? <gasps> Do we yet understand how privileged we are to have the Sola Scriptura? Do we realize that in our Bibles we have the same exact revelations that God gave to the Jews? We have the whole Old Testament and New Testament. Do we yet realize that the Bible is the very Word of God? It doesn't just contain it, it is the very Word of God. Flip slide 20. Sorry, I only have about 74 slides to go. No, I'm kidding. Romans 3 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And NLT says it this way. True. Some of them were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful does not mean that God will be unfaithful. <clears throat> God is never unfaithful. So as we continue to look at Paul's teaching, we need to keep in mind that Paul was trying to ground and establish these new Christians in Rome in the faith. Remember, he's writing Romans to a young church, not much bigger than ours, in Rome at that time. Rome looked like modern-day Philadelphia and New York back then. There was all kinds of crazy stuff going on back then. Temple, prostitutes, you name it. Anything you could think about. Look what he says here. He's asking a rhetorical question. What then if some did not believe? Or true, some of them were unfaithful. What about those who were unfaithful to the promises of God and to his word? Those revelations that were delivered to them. Will their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? That word nullify means, will God's word be without effect or useless? What is Paul doing here? 
He's showing us the contrast between Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. Paul picks up this theme of God's faithfulness from the Old Testament and his faithfulness to fulfill his terms of the covenant that he made with Israel, that God made with Israel. It is the Jews' church who failed to keep their covenant obligations with God. And if you read through your Old Testament, time and time again, they screw up, they get punished, they repent. It's just a whole process going on and on. How does Paul answer the question, slide 21, Romans 3, 4? Paul says, may it never be, or like, don't even consider that kind of insane thinking is really what Paul's trying to get across. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. It is written that you may be made right in your words or justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What do we glean from this? We're almost done. What do we glean from Paul's response and how do you and I take what was written 2,000 years ago and begin to apply it to our life today? Paul's answer is clear in that the failure on the part of the Jews in no way affects the purposes of God. Same with you and I. Our failure in no way affects what God will accomplish in and through every one of your lives. God is never unfaithful to his promises just because you and I are unfaithful to him. Let's come clean. We've all been unfaithful to him. We've all committed adultery on him. We've worshipped things in creation that are not God. We're the adulterers. We are the unfaithful. He, all, he is always faithful. How about Job 40, verse 8, slide 22. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me so that you may be justified? Or I like how the NLT puts it. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you're right? Church, how often do we condemn God because we think we're right? Well, it got quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. How often, all of us, me included, do we think we know what's best for us, and when it doesn't happen the way we want it, we'll put God on trial? Hmm, wow. God gave his promises to the Jews. So the question back in verse 3 where God says, will their unbelief make useless or without effect God's faithfulness? No. Even when you screw up and walk away from God, if you're his kid, he is never unfaithful to you. Don't let any false prophet, any liar tell you anything different. Paul says, may it never be. In essence, Paul is saying that it's unthinkable in our vernacular today. So we need to understand from this teaching here that God's unconditional promises in no way depends on the faithfulness of man. If he did, we'd have no salvation. <clears throat> Paul says, let, every, let God be found true and every man found a liar. And here, once again, is the contrast that God is true and human beings are liars. Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. So church, when you and I see the Old Testament speaking of God being true, this has the idea of God being always, always, always trustworthy, 
and reliable. But we also need to understand that while God's promises are always true and faithful, His truth is also displayed in His judgments. You see, the gospel isn't just Jesus is my very special friend. Let's all get together, make a campfire, and sing Kumbaya. That, that is, some churches will preach that. But see, the gospel is also God's judgment. Amen. <clears throat> How about slide 23, Nehemiah 9.33. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, we've acted wickedly. Or how about the NLT again? God, every time you punished us, you were being just. And deep in our hearts, we know that's true. Church, we know that's true. We have sinned greatly. And you have gave us only what we deserved. So when Paul uses the word true here, he's talking about reliability and trustworthiness. And when he uses the word liar here, He's speaking of people that are untrustworthy and faithless. So what, we, what can we glean from this as we wrap it up? See, God is not only faithful to us when we are so often unfaithful. Church, he's reliable even when we are unreliable. We may not like the answer, but God knows what you need far better than you'll ever know what you need for yourself. But do you trust him with that? He finishes with that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. So how do we tie it all together now? Slide 24. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. Paul's quoting from Psalm 51.4. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, I want you to take a look at this prayer and ask yourself this question. Can you say this prayer from the bottom of your heart to God? God, against you and you alone, I have sinned. God, I, God I, I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And God, your judgment against me is just. Can we have the courage and humility and contrite heart to claim this, these words as our prayer, ourself to God. You see, when David wrote this, he was confessing about his sin with Bathsheba. In doing this, Paul is showing us the faithfulness of God when he judges sin. Why? That's the other part of the gospel, church. Because the truthfulness of God also has that negative aspect to it, justified in his words. When we read the Old Testament, the revelations of God, it clearly spells out for us that God will and must judge sin. He will not allow sin into heaven. So hear me this morning. Please understand that God is just and faithful when he judges sin as well as when he is faithful to fulfill his promises. So then Paul wanted the Jews back then to understand that God's plan does not protect them from God's judgment and coming to church and being baptized, and taking communion are wonderful things, but that doesn't protect you from God's judgment. If you die in your sin, you will burn in hell for all eternity. The Bible's clear about that. And if you think hell, hell is not Hollywood's version of sitting on a beach with your sinful friends and getting high on a joint or anything like that. The world wants you to think that, 
But if you look in Luke 21, when the rich young ruler woke up in Hades in hell, he could see, he could talk, he could think, he could remember, he could thirst, he could feel pain. Read it for yourself. It is not a place that I would want to see anybody end up in. And there's only one way from not going there, and that is that you surrender your life completely to the Jesus Christ, where his blood is the payment that washes away your sin. That's the only way you avoid that. Don't be misled. So what's Paul doing here? In slide 26, Romans 3, 5. But some might say, our sinfulness serves as a good purpose, Paul. For it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? It's just a mere a human point of view. So Paul deals with the sinful cleverness of the sinner. He says, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, or as the NLT puts it, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Paul says, if our sin makes God's righteousness stand out more gloriously, does this then make God unrighteous? That's how saved people are. They'll always try to justify their sin. Even back in Paul's day, man would try to twist God's word around so they could justify their own behavior. Oh, oh, Pastor Jack, oh, you know, I've had couples come into my office. Oh, we're, we're going to be getting married in two months or three months, so it's okay if we live together. God didn't say that's okay. He says, for this cause, a man will leave his mom and dad and be joined to his wife. It doesn't say man will leave his mom and dad and shack up with his girlfriend, and if she doesn't work out, trade her in like a used car and get the next one. It says man will leave his mom and dad and be joined to his wife, and they become a one flesh union. But you can see how people will try to justify and try to make sin okay, uh, that God will be okay with that. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it, church? It's not what it says. The Jews were thinking that that's what they're thinking. They're thinking to themselves, if our sinfulness and failures contributed to God's majesty being more revealed, on what grounds did he punish us? Paul, you're trying to prove to us that we're going to be punished just like those unsaved Gentiles are going to be punished. How in the world then can God punish us who are magnifying his grace? I'm going to sin more that his grace is going to be on display. And we'll get to Romans 6 later on. We'll really nail that. We'll shut that down real quick. Paul, doesn't that seem unfair? Paul says, look, I'm speaking in human terms. So what does Paul mean? Notice how this argument is how natural, unsaved people will argue. They're always trying to justify sinful behavior and say that's okay. Let's be honest this morning. Aren't we guilty from time to time of doing the very same thing? The unsaved person is always trying to play with words to win an argument. And one of the most revealing characteristics of falling sinful man is his amazing ability to rationalize sin. How about slide 27 and 28? Thus saith Yahweh, Cursed is the man, now look at the text, church, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And in the NLT, slide 28, this is what Yahweh says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, and they turn their hearts away from Yahweh. Hear me this morning. God can never and will never be tempted to deceive. 
He will never deceive you. He will never lie to you. Think about how foolish the argument is. If any sinful act can no longer be called bad and no longer be punished, then you can get away with doing any evil thing you wish for the sake of a good result, and it opens the floodgates of evil. Man, if that doesn't speak about our world today, i got to be honest with you, I don't know what else to say. Our world is saying it's all right to slaughter and murder unborn children in the womb. Our world is saying it's okay for people of the same sex to get married. Yet the Bible is clear. Either God is true or the world is true. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God. I don't care what they say about me or do about me. The Bible makes it clear. I'm not going to trust all my government to make it okay for me to go to heaven. That's insanity, church. That's what they're, they're opening up the floodgate evil. So then any doctrine or any thinking which allows for that simple behavior is in fact insane. It's atrocious. Paul, if you're saying then that my sins bring out God's mercy and compassion, then God must forgive my sin. That's sadly the perverted logic of sinful man today. So as I close this morning, let me ask you this question. Forget about me. I'm insignificant. Where is God calling you this morning to repent? Let me ask you to bow your heads. We're going to be just celebrating the Lord's Supper in a minute. Honestly, do business with God right now. Where is God calling you to repent? What does that word mean, Pastor Jack? See your sin for what it is. Grieve over it. Acknowledge it. Turn from it and walk in obedience with the Lord. That's what the word metanoia, our English word repent, means. I've been following the course of this world. I've been doing these things. God, you're revealing in, by your Holy Spirit in me that I have been practicing behaviors that are sinful towards you. And now I need to turn away from that, and I need to walk with you in obedience to you. So ask yourself this morning, you don't know if today's your last day on earth. You really don't. Think about it. Do you find yourself putting God on trial when things are going really, really bad for you? When you're being pressed with all of the things of the world coming on you? And you're in pain. Are you putting God on trial? <clears throat> Are you willing, slide 29, to come clean with, as David said? Can we all think about this prayer this morning? Yahweh, against you and you alone I have sinned. Yahweh, I, I've done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. So how do we escape that, church? Come clean with God. Listen, God sent his only son, his only unique son, to live a sinless life, which he did, die on that cross for our sin, spilled that crimson blood on that cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, it was a, a merciful, inhumane thing to see what must have happened when they took that flagellum, whipped them 39 times, and that flagellum had hooks on the end that ripped his flesh right off his body. So his spine was exposed. They put a crown of thorns on his head. 
These were not tiny little things. These were real thorns. And they beat it onto his skull. They blindfolded him and punched him in the face and say, you're the son of God, who hit you? <clears throat> he was beaten, bloodied, bruised, whipped. He didn't make any accusations. He went all the way to the cross and spilled his blood there too. God the Father punished his son with all the anger our sins produced. You hear me this morning. Only Yahweh is capable of handling that. So for you and I, we need to see ourselves the way God sees us. We are sinners. We have sinned against him. His judgment against us is just. If you were to drop dead today and you were standing before the living God, and he was to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you in here? There's only one answer to that question. Because your son shed his blood on that cross at Calvary as payment for my sin. That's the only way. So imagine this. All the bad about you and I, all the evil, bad, sinful, wretched thing about you and I was placed on Jesus Christ. All the good about Jesus was placed into our account. Think about it. Everything that was bad about me was placed on him, and everything good about him was placed on me. I don't know about you. I didn't deserve that. Do you? Imagine that. And we can't do backroom deals. We can't bargain with him. There's no, like, I'm going to let you slip in under the radar. It doesn't work that way, church. And you listening around the world, it doesn't work that way. Now is the time for you to get right with God. We don't know how much time we have left here. Now is the time. All you can do is confess your sin. The word is homagaleo. It means to say the same thing about sin that God says. You confess your sin to Him. You do it with a contrite heart. You don't confess just because you got caught. You confess because there's a deep emotional pain, something going inside you that knows that you have screwed up bad. You have sinned against holy God. You've broken his law. You've lied, cheated, stealed, used his name as a cuss word. I have done the same thing. All of us are guilty. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, the payment for sin is death, for all have sinned against God. So, you confess your sin to him. You come clean with him. And you turn away from that behavior. And you place your faith and trust and what Christ accomplished for you on that cross. The real question is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the eternal Son of God? Do you believe that the only way that you will step into glory is because what he's accomplished for you on that cross at Calvary, where you can write your name in those nail prints? Bow your heads this morning. If you are here this morning, I want to encourage you, and you listening around the world right now, now is the time to get right with God. Now is the time for you to confess your sin. Now is the time to place your faith. That means that word means that you trust in and you rely upon what Christ has done for you. Your confidence and your relying, relying on Jesus Christ alone to pay your sin debt. You all know someday you're going to drop dead. Make, you know, even the atheist knows that. What happens after that? 
and your eyes are opened up and you're standing before that beam of seat of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds we did here on earth when we were alive, whether good or evil. There is a judgment coming. It can be paid for by you, by not believing, or it can be paid for by the shed blood of our Christ. Father, I thank you for the cross. It was at the cross that everything was taken care of for us. It was at the cross that all of our sins were paid for. It was at the cross where the blood was shed. Lord, I pray for those whose hearts you're tugging at this morning, that they will come to the place of surrender and trust in you. 